very thankful for the opportunity to participate in a worship service such as that, to point our hearts and our minds to Christ. If you are three years old through third grade, you can slip out for our children's church during this time. The rest of us are turning to John chapter 4, John chapter 4 this morning. Guys, thank you in the back for even going with that power surge. Their personalities are so electric back there, they have to be careful when they touch the keys. I've worked AV in a church before, and it's a thankless job until something goes wrong. And so thank you guys and girls for serving in that role, and thanks for pulling that up quickly. What a wonderful song service to point our hearts to Christ in that way. Friend, if you're here this morning and it's not well with your soul, you've come to church because at Thanksgiving it's what people do, maybe somebody invited you, maybe you've come with a friend, maybe you don't know a person in the building, maybe you're new to the area and you're looking for support, and you sing a song like that and your heart cries out, how can that be true of me? It's only through the person and work of Jesus Christ that it can be well with any of us. And so we look to him in faith and through every area of life. Thus, we can cry out, it is well with my soul. Thanksgiving is such a wonderful time to gather around the table with friends and family. It can also be a very difficult time. For those who've lost loved ones, perhaps this is the first Thanksgiving without that one in, in your life that you are used to celebrating with. We have traditions in our home in Thanksgiving. I know that doesn't shock a lot of you because for many of you, you know, I, I like order. I like things in a certain place. I like routine and I like tradition. And so if Thanksgiving doesn't have certain dishes, then it's not quite Thanksgiving. Another tradition that we would have is growing up, we would always eat lunch very early. My dad would take his lunch break uh, early, I would consider early, 11.30 every day. And so we would eat lunch at 11.30 every day until Thanksgiving. And then my mom would say, I just want to make sure that you're hungry enough. So we're going to push Thanksgiving lunch for all of our family that came over. We're going to push it to the dreaded hour of 1 o'clock. And for us as kids, that was like an eternity. And so by about 12, 12, 15, the kids run into the kitchen, the smell of all the food is in the air, and what is the phrase that every child says? It's not, I'm hungry, what is it? I'm starving, right? I only had breakfast three hours ago, <laughs> and at this point in my life, I'm starving. It's a statement that we make often, but how many of us actually know what it's like to be starving? To be so hungry that you're just looking for any food that's remotely palatable to satiate your hunger. I took a missions trip to Asia several years ago, many years ago. And it was a long flight. It actually took us three days to get to where we were going of travel. We got there having dealt with airplane food, which, you know, if you're traveling on, on an airline that's not from America, doesn't, not that airline food is good at all, but if you're traveling on a different airline, it doesn't taste right, sometimes doesn't settle well with your stomach. And by the time that we landed in this country, uh, the country of India, 
we had been traveling on less than palatable food for three days. And we got there and we saw a McDonald's and I thought, this is my moment. Because at that time, I, had, I was experiencing hunger like I hadn't experienced it before. Not only was I hungry, but I like felt empty. I felt tired. And I was desperate for something to taste like home. It was one of my first mission trips overseas to a totally foreign environment. And so I walk into McDonald's in India only to realize that in India, McDonald's doesn't serve beef. And so they had a Mahajara Mac, is what they called it. I remember it because it's imprinted on my mind. It was such trauma to my soul that day, right? A hamburger made with chicken. It's just not the same. And it was small, and the sides were small, and they didn't give refills. And at the end, I was not fulfilled, right? But I remember that, that moment of desperation, have you ever been truly desperate? I'm not talking about like, I'm not talking about feeling a need for something. Like, oh, it would be nice to have a drink of water. Or it would be nice to be warm. But to be caught in the midst of a snowstorm far from shelter and to be desperate for warmth, to be desperate for that fire to be desperate for that drink of water. One more story, and I'll tell you why I'm drawing your attention to this, but I used to do a lot of hiking in high school on the Appalachian Trail, and we would plan out our, our week-long endeavors, not stopping but carrying everything on our back, and we would filter water along the way. And on Wednesday evening, we got to a place that was supposed to have a spring of water there that we could filter and supply all of our water with. But we got there after a long day of hiking in the summer, and the spring was no longer there. The water source was gone, even though it was marked on our maps. The water source wasn't there. So after a long day of hiking and drinking all of our water, we got to the place where we expected to refill our water reserves, and there was nothing. And for the first time in my life, in the middle of the wilderness in Virginia, I experienced true dehydration. A feeling of going to bed at night without food because you don't have water to cook your food and you don't want to eat to, to draw the moisture out of your body to process it. And so we went to bed hungry and I had dreams of, of rivers and the ice maker turning on and clinking ice down into the freezer. I'd wake up throughout the night with this insatiable longing for something. The next morning, we packed up camp quickly and hiked three miles to a nearby lake where we're able to, to, purif to purify the water and then drink it. And I can remember us all standing around as we had one purification pump among us, and we would just purify little drinks of water and pass it around, and eventually, after an hour, replenish our water supplies. Have you ever been in that position to where it's not, no longer a desire in your life, it's no longer just a want, but it is a desperate longing? You've been taken to the place where there's a true desperation in your life. What John reveals to us in this passage in John chapter 4 
is that that is the point that the unbeliever must come to in order to see Jesus as his Savior. For there is a difference between wanting Jesus because your life can be better, maybe, and being driven to Christ out of desperation because you recognize your need as a sinner. Let's look at John chapter 4. We'll begin reading in verse 43, and I'll read down through verse 54. If you want to look there with me in your Bibles, John chapter 4, we'll begin reading in verse 43. After the two days in Samaria, Jesus departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. And so Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And the official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. So Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. And he asked him the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. And the father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And look carefully at the next phrase. He himself believed he and all his household this was now the second sign that jesus did when he had come from judea to galilee father as we look into your scripture this morning may you give such grace during this thanksgiving season that we may recognize the need that each one of us has And that we may run to Christ, whether that is a need for a new sense of that eternal life springing up inside of us as as has been planted in us as believers by the Holy Spirit, or whether that is a soul in this room running to you for genuine faith and conversion. As we pray through the name of our High Priest, Jesus Christ, amen. John gives us, as I said in this passage this morning, a beautiful picture of dependent faith. If we review John's purpose in this entire gospel, our minds are drawn to John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, where John says at the end of his recording of the works of Jesus, that Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so John, throughout his entire book, reveals to us who Jesus is. 
He reveals to us what Jesus has done. And then with the understanding, the right understanding of who Jesus is and the right understanding of what he has done, John reveals over and over again these beautiful pictures of genuine faith. He reveals pictures of disgenuine faith, of of those who hear what Jesus is all about and they want the bread that he offers in this life, but when he says, I am the bread of heaven, thousands turn away because they want what Jesus offers, not who Jesus really is. As we see the Samaritans, as that wonderful, beautiful picture of the woman at the well calling them to come and see Jesus. And they come and they, they recognize that truly this person, this man, is the Savior of the world. And yet Jesus in this passage leaves, you know, the Samaritan revival, whatever you want to call it, the the revival at Sychar. And he goes back to Jerusalem, or goes back on his way to Jerusalem, to Cana, through Judea, and finds those who will reject. What I'd like you to see this morning is the nature of saving faith, and that that nature of saving faith is a desperate dependence on Jesus Christ. What I'm going to do is I'm going to walk through the passage this morning and explain the details and help you understand the story. And then I'd like to give four brief observations regarding this passage. Let's look at this passage to make sure that we understand what's happening appropriately. Jesus has just left the account of the Samaritans being saved, and he's headed back to Cana. Thus, at the end of this passage, in verse 54, John makes the note that it's the second sign that's given to them. One was the the sign of the water to wine, that the water of faith is replacing that, that, uh, the wine of faith, excuse me, is replacing the water of traditional legalism that, that the Jews had slipped into, that the Pharisees were teaching, that Jesus was coming in to replace their error with truth. And so he puts wine in the cleansing water pots. He goes to Samaria just before this and he sees scores come to Christ. And then we see this beautiful phrase just before our account, back in verse 42, that Jesus is the Savior of the world. And this was always God's plan. The Jews had taken Messiah and had just held him for themselves, but Jesus came to bring salvation to the world. In fact, it was the plan from the very beginning in Genesis chapter 12, when God tells Abraham that through his descendants, what does he say? One nation will be blessed? No, in Genesis chapter 12, In verses 1 through 3, he says, I will bless those who bless you. Him who dishonors you, I will curse. I will make of you a great nation. And in you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So it was God's plan all along to use the Jewish people as a beautiful picture of his saving grace to open the doors to the world. But this does not mean that all will believe. Just because Jesus is the Savior of the world doesn't mean all will believe. And so as we come to this passage of Scripture, we see in verses 43 and 44 that there are those who reject. I mean, look down at this passage with me. After these two days, he departed from the Samaritan revival into Galilee. In verse 44, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. 
that the Jews, especially those who were raised in Nazareth and around Nazareth, rejected Christ. This was prophesied by God. We see that in in the book of Psalms, where it says the, the, the stone that the builders rejected became the chief cornerstone. We see that in Isaiah chapter 6, with God saying that I'm going to send prophets, but they will not have ears to hear. And Isaiah says, send me. And, and God says, go and tell the people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. And so we understand that it was in the sovereign providence of God that Israel rejected Christ. But we need to ask the question, what human factors led to that rejection? And we see two human factors leading to that rejection in verses 44 and 45. The first one is that they rejected Christ because of familiarity. That a prophet is not received or not given honor in his hometown. These people grew up with Jesus. Many of them saw him as a child. Some of them may have babysat him as a baby. And yet they look at this man that they grew up with and they say, is this really the Christ, this person that we know so well? Surely this statement is given in reference generally to the Jewish people. But very specifically, familiarity can lead to complacency and to contempt if we're not careful. Friend, if you were raised in the Christian faith, you can forget the joy of salvation. You can forget the joy of being rescued from your sin. In fact, it can be so familiar to you that you could miss it altogether. So we need to be careful that our familiarity doesn't breed complacency or even contempt. But not only familiarity, we also see a distraction A misunderstanding in verse 45. Because he came to Galilee and what did they want? They wanted signs. They wanted wonders. They wanted to be fed. They wanted to be healed. They welcomed him. And that may at first seem like a really good thing that they welcomed Jesus. But we have to ask the question, why did they welcome him? Well, because they had seen him do incredible things and they wanted to see him do more incredible things. One of the commentators I read said they were curious. I think that's a really good assessment of what's happening here. I wrote down that they were fans, but they weren't followers. They were admirers, but they were not acceptors. They saw Jesus for how he could help them, but not how they could serve him. They were willing to accept him as a miracle worker, but not as their Lord and as their Savior. They were following because they were curious about how Jesus would improve their lives. They were interested in the miracles of Christ, but not the person of Christ. If we're not careful, we can fall into that same vein, can't we? What can Jesus do for me? Rather than, can you believe how Jesus has rescued me and I can live my life in service to him? As a whole, that area rejected Christ, but there was one person who John tells us in verse 46 who was not just curious, but he was desperate. Look at the desperate cries of this official. Begin reading in verse 46. So when he came to Galilee, there was was an official whose son was ill. Who was this man? Well, that word official means some sort of royal attendant to the king. Someone who served the king in a high-ranking position. Probably a wealthy person, definitely a person of status. Perhaps we could think of this as a congressman or maybe even a member of the presidential cabinet. 
being worthy of respect, being worthy of honor, someone who is dignified, and yet this person who had status and dignity and wealth was brought to their knees in desperation. Why was he so desperate? Well, friend, he was desperate because there was a problem in his life that he couldn't solve. He was desperate because there was something in his life that he loved that was hurting. It's every parent's greatest fear and greatest trial. Look at verse 47. When this man heard Jesus had come to do Judea and Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for his son was at the point of death. Every parent or grandparent or aunt or uncle or brother or sister knows what it's like to see a child that you love in pain. If you're not a parent, it's hard to explain the inner grief. I mean, it's, it's one thing if, if your child skins their knee and is crying, and as we say in our house, no blood, no tears, right? Okay, let's dry it up. You'll be okay. Rub some dirt in it. It's going to be fine. But to have a, a helpless child in the throes of illness is a helpless feeling when you know that you would do anything to take it away. You would do anything to take their place. And this man of status had come and was desperate for Christ. And so he turns to Jesus. Surely he had heard of the miracles, he'd heard of the healings. And Jesus looks at him and says, just like the rest of Galilee, unless you see signs... Unless you see miracles, you're not going to believe. You just want me to do something for you. And in this verse, in verse 48, Jesus deals directly with the main problem of the Jews. The hungry crowds followed him because they were hoping that he would feed another 5,000, but they walked away when Jesus was the bread of life. The sick came out in droves to be healed until Jesus told them that he was here for their soul. The zealots came out because he, they thought Jesus was here to overthrow the Roman Empire and thus give the Jews their freedom, but they turned their back on Christ when they found out that he wanted kingdom over their heart and soul, not their political endeavors. And so he pushes back to test the faith of this royal official. But this man continues to cry out in desperation. Look down at verse 49. Sir, come down. That's an imperative. That's a command. That is someone crying out and saying, I need you to do this now before my child dies. And you can almost, if you know your Bible well, you can almost hear the echoes of blind Bartimaeus. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And everybody around him is saying, you know, be quiet, blind man. You're a, you're a beggar. You're not clean. You need to stay away. And no one could shut him up. They all were trying to push him down. And he presses through the crowd, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And thus we have another portrait of such desperation. Come down that my son will live. Say what you want about my heart. Jesus, I need you. I'm desperate. 
What that would look like for an unsaved person today would be to be overwhelmed with the weight of their sin, to be pillowing their head at night and to know that their conscience is offending them as they know that they have a problem, but they don't know the solution. Maybe you've tried to fill it with alcohol. Maybe you've tried to fill it with sexuality. Maybe you've tried to fill it with illegal or legal drugs. Maybe you've tried to fill it with painkillers. Maybe you've tried to fill it with relationships. But as we say at community often, what is it? You have a hole in your life the size of God. And only he can fill that. And so as this man cries out in desperation, Jesus answers And look at verse 50. The man gives him a command. Come down now so my son will live. And Jesus gives him a command. Go. Go. Your son will live. In verse 50, the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. What is the difference between the phrase, look down at your Bibles. I want you to notice two phrases. If you have your Bible journal with you, maybe you want to circle it, maybe you want to mark it. In verse 50, the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him. And then later on in the passage, in verse 53, he himself believed. These are two interesting phrases. A phrase in verse 50 that reveals incomplete faith. And in verse 53, rescuing faith, saving faith. My friend, listen carefully. Just believing in Jesus is not enough. I love the fall for many reasons, one of them being because it's college football season. Sometimes that's more of a pain than it is a joy, but often my boys and I will sit and watch a college football game. Maybe not the whole thing, maybe just a part of it. And, and pretty often, somebody will run into the end zone or catch a pass in the end zone, and there's some sort of gesture that gestures to heaven, right? Whether that's selfish, whether that's a genuine believer, whether that's saying, man, I'm so good, you know? Or don't you think I'm God? You know, or thank you, Lord, for the grace, or whatever it would be. And the question often gets asked by kids, does that person believe in God? Does that person believe in Jesus? Look, they have a Bible verse on their face. Do they believe in God? Look, they have written out Bible verses on their shoes. Do they believe in God? And I'd like to submit to you that that is an an incomplete question. Because the answer to everyone on this planet is yes. Because even the word atheist has the word theism in it, which means God. You can't even define yourself as not believing in God without mentioning God. Your heart cries out, recognizing in the deepest recesses of your soul that there is a God. Your conscience resonates with that truth that we all know that when we die, it's not over. But James gives us that warning that there is an incomplete faith in James chapter 2, verse 19, for even the demons believe and shudder. 
And so knowing that Jesus exists or wanting Jesus to do good things for you or asking Jesus, quote-unquote, into your heart, however you want to phrase that, knowing that there is a God participating in some magical ceremony where you repeat words over and over again, or you prayed some prayer by the dishwasher at three years old that you don't remember, but your parents said that you did. Friends, it's not enough. And that's what John wants us to see. Because knowing that Jesus exists or wanting, that, or wanting Jesus to do good things for you is not necessarily saving faith. Often it can be the first step to understanding who Jesus is. Often it can be that first step to opening your Bible. But that first step is not enough. And so let's look at this genuine faith evidence. Look down at verse 51. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus said, your son will live. The words of God bringing life. You see, it was in that moment that this nobleman realized the power that Jesus possessed. It was in that moment that his desperation for his son's healing turned to Jesus, for it says he himself believed. And that's John's way in very specifically writing that, to show you that something different happened in his heart. That he looked at Jesus rather than a miracle worker as God who gives life. That in that moment, Jesus became his rescuer. In his desperation, it led him to see Jesus for who he really was. And in his desperation, this nobleman believed in Christ. I'm reminded of this desperation pictured in the book, The Pilgrim's Progress. And I reference it often. I do that on purpose. One of these days, you're going to actually read it, right? Because you're going to say, I'm sick and tired of him talking about it and not knowing what it is. And that's one of my goals, just to irritate you until you turn and read it. Because other than the Bible, you should read this book, okay? And as, as Pilgrim, just the other day, or just a couple weeks ago, I had the opportunity to listen for hours to this book. I'd read it, but I never listened to it on audiobook. And I was struck with the desperation of Christian as he opens up the, the Bible and all of a sudden he realizes his sin and he's walking around the city of destruction and telling his family, I have to go, I have to go, something has to be done. I'm desperate, I'm desperate for this as he would weep over his sin. And when he gets to the slough of despond and he sinks in the trials of life, it's, it's his companions who were not desperate who turn back, but Christian presses on because he is desperate for a cure. He is desperate to be rid of this burden. And as the darts of the evil one are thrown at him and he comes through all of these trials, it is his desperation that leads him to the cross. And as he's climbing that last hill of Calvary, 
And the burden gets heavier and heavier with every step. And as he lands at the foot of the cross, in his desperation, his sin falls away into the empty tomb. For it is his desperation that drove him to the cross. And it serves as a beautiful picture, friend, of the fact that you must be desperate for Jesus. You have to realize that your sin condemns you before a holy God. And Jesus is not some pie in the sky. God is not some man upstairs. That Jesus is your only hope for forgiveness. And that desperation for God to do something in your life leads you to the God who is working in your life. And that's what happened here. That the desperation of this man for his child led him to the God that he was to be desperate for. I'd like to give you four brief observations about this text that I think will be helpful for us this week. The first observation that I'd like to make is to understand the role of supernatural signs in the life of the Christian. You see, the reason that the son was healed was for the soul of the father and the souls of the family. This this nobleman, when he came to Christ, he turned to his family. I don't know if he said this, but I'd I'd like to imagine that he may have used even the same phrase that the the, the lady at the well did. Come and see this Jesus. You want to know why you're saved? Because there's a God in heaven. And he deserves our heart and our life. But the role of supernatural signs throughout the scripture is never to draw your attention to a fascination with the sign. It's to point to the one who gave the sign. And those in our culture today who seem so fascinated by these supernatural signs are often drawn to the signs themselves rather than to the God of the sign, rather than to the God of the miracle. For when you see God perform some sort of miracle in your life, whether that be a rescuing or whether that be a salvation of a family member or whether that be a healing you've been praying for or whether that be the unbelievable miracle of a dear brother or sister in Christ passing from the pain of this world into the glory of the next. May we be reminded that our attention should not be drawn to the sign but to the God who performs it. It wasn't enough for the son to be healed. His heart was drawn to Jesus. He saw the love and care evidenced through Jesus that Jesus would care about his family. He saw the power of God evidenced in that Jesus could give life with just his words. And he believed in Christ. The second observation I'd like to give to you in regards to this text is that status and money cannot prevent suffering. What are you spending your life pursuing? Do you think that if you just had X amount of dollars or this position that your problems would go away? 
That, it, that if I could just get to this level in the company, or if my kids just respected me this much, or if I just had this much money, because it seems like there's more going out than coming in no matter what I do. And there's more month than money at the end of the month. And if I just had a little bit more, all my problems would go away, and I'm constantly tempted to look at stuff to solve my problem. We need to remember that status and money cannot prevent suffering, for sickness and death are the great equalizer. In fact, sometimes wealth and status bring more suffering than, than without it. If you talk to somebody who has fame or status within our culture, oftentimes their desire is just to be normal. For that in and of itself brings another layer of suffering. People have tried to use their money to prevent death and suffering. To date, I looked this up uh, this week, 500 people have paid to have their head or their entire body cryogenically frozen so that one day as science progresses, one day science can bring them back to life and they can continue living because the only hope they had was on this earth. Friends, one day they will be brought back to life, but not through science. They will be resurrected by God either to eternal joy or to eternal judgment. And no amount of wealth or status can change that. Here was a man who as a father, I can tell you, this was resonating in his heart, if you gave him the option of everything he owned and all of his status to save his son, he would have done it. But he couldn't, he couldn't save him. He needed something else. Thirdly, I'd like to steal a reflection from J.C. Ryle. There's a book on the Resource Center, Expository Notes in the Gospel of John. J.C. Ryle was an incredible pastor who would give devotional thoughts that in some ways are beyond comparison. They are, they are amazing devotional thoughts. And so if you don't have it, you can find it on our resource center. If we don't have any extra copies, you can pick it up on Amazon. But J.C. Ryle on this passage offers this thought. <clears throat> he says, God's word is as good as his presence. I thought that was really good. God's word is as good as his presence. What does the man say to Jesus? Come down so my son will live. And remember Lazarus, you know, the sisters of Lazarus. Lazarus wasn't talking at that point, um, right? The sisters of Lazarus. If you would have just been here. And he says, come down so, so, he, so my son will live. And perhaps there's a, a thought back to the prophets of the Old Testament and being there and laying their hands on, on the child and seeing the child raised to life or healed. And yet all Jesus has to do is speak because it is the word of God that gives life. And friend, have you ever wanted Jesus to be right beside you? Have you ever wanted the presence of God in your life? Desired, I mean, how many of us have thought, okay, if I get a time machine, one of the first places I'm going is I'm going back to the first century because I want to walk the streets with Jesus and I want to be one of his disciples. And friends, that's a scary thought because most of them turned away. 
But, but if it were me, I'd want to be there. And here, J.C. Ryle gives this wonderful thought. His word is just as good as his presence. Jesus didn't need to be there. They needed his word. And so, friend, as we are looking at Thanksgiving, would we be so thankful for the presence of God and that one day we will see him face to face, but he has left us with his spirit. Lastly, this dependence that is evidenced by this man is not just for salvation. Some of you have heard the phrase, you know, the gospel for everyday life or applying the gospel every day. And perhaps you've been confused by that and you think, I don't really know what they're talking about. This is some sort of esoteric idea that somehow the gospel is for everyday life. I thought the gospel was just for unbelievers to come to Christ. And, and I'd like to show you that this dependence upon which a Christian needs to come to Christ for salvation is a prerequisite for salvation. This dependence is the foundation of the Christian life. In Galatians chapter 3, just three evidences of this briefly. Galatians, Galatians chapter 3, Paul tells the church and, and the churches around Galatia, are you so foolish to think that you've begun your walk by faith and yet you can continue by works? That there's some sort of different faith, different dependence that's needed for every day in your life than you need it at the moment of your salvation. Friends, the essence of the Christian life is to wake up every morning and to say, God, I cannot believe that you would save me. I'm dependent on you today to live in faith. This is what's evidenced in the book of Hebrews as Jesus lives in perfect dependence on his Father in perfect faith and as he calls out in prayer. Dependent faith in prayer is the essence of the Christian life. And so realize that you can't do it on your own. You need the empowering grace of God. Come to the throne of grace to find that grace to help in times of need. Paul tells Galatians this. He also tells the Corinthians this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, that famous passage about the thorn in his flesh. What was it? We don't know, but we know it bothered him. And what was his conclusion? Listen to his, word, his words. With this concept of dependence in living our Christian lives, here's what he says. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest on me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with my weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I am weak... What's the next phrase? Then I am strong, right? What is he saying? He's saying that when I am strong in myself, I am weak in my flesh and in my spirit. But when I am weak before God, when I cast myself down in dependence, I find the strength of God. And so, friend, if you're in a dependent place, you're exactly where God wants you. To cry out to him, Christian, every day. One last illustration, that this dependence does not motivate us to apathy. For you may think, 
Does this mean that I sit back and let go and let God do everything in my life? No. 1 Corinthians 15.10, by the grace of God, I am what I am. There's nothing good about me except for the grace of God. As one of the reformers would say, the only thing that I bring to the table is my sin. Everything else comes from God. His grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, listen to Paul. He says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. I work harder than any of them. Though it's not I, but Christ that is in me. The grace of God displayed in me. So does dependence lead to apathy? No, friend. A dependence leads to a fueled Christian life of saying, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And through His grace, I can live for Him. And I can live dependent on His Word and on His character. Unbeliever, have you been brought to a point in your life where you've been dependent only on Christ? And believer, are you living in dependence on God every single day. May that be the source of our Christian life, especially this week, during this week of Thanksgiving. Heavenly Father, I'm so thankful for the truth of Scripture and the way that it permeates our heart and our conscience. We're so thankful for the music that drew our hearts to a God who is high and lifted up. And may we give dependent thanks this week to a God who knows all, to a God who deserves and desires worship. May our hearts be continually drawn in dependence to you.